0: Hello, Radioland podcast, Phil, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, we talk to Linda Herview, author of Forgotten, the Untold Story of D-Day's Black Heroes at Home and at War. We talk about the new O.J. Simpson miniseries on FX, and Lori Weiner will rule once and for all on his guilt or innocence. Laurie, want to give us a preview?
1: Johnny Cochran did it.
0: Joining me are my usual co-hosts, the professor Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom.
2: Hey, you know that thing where radio people always say, I'm Tom Brokaw? Of course, radio people don't say, I'm Tom Brokaw. TV people say, I'm Tom Brokaw. But that you do say, I'm Seth Greenland. I never say, I'm Tom Lutz. You never say it.
1: No, we don't have to do that because that's his role. That's what he does. All
0: right. I'm Tom Lutz. You you don't have to say that. I say, hello, Tom. And you say, I'm Tom Lutz. And I say, (laughs) you know, I know because I said, hello, Tom. And she's the fiction editor at LARB. She's writing a book on Oscar Hammerstein, which we all are awaiting with bated breath. Lori Weiner.
1: I'm Tom Lutz.
0: Stick around for the LARB Radio Hour. FX is airing a series based on the O.J. Simpson trial. Lori, what is that called?
1: The People versus O.J. Simpson.
0: It's based on the Jeffrey Toobin book.
1: Yeah, I think kind of based on it.
0: The run of his life. Uh, Jeffrey Toobin wrote about O.J. for The New Yorker. Uh, what do we think of the series? We've all been watching. They've aired half of it, I think. Lori?
1: I'm totally digging it. I uh, worked at the LA Times during this whole... when the thing went down. In fact, my first day at the LA Times was the day of the Bronco chase, and the newsroom was just s- completely still in front of TVs.
2: I've heard Lori tell this story, and she says, she, thought, she walked into the newsroom, she thought, this is weird. This is Los Angeles. Everybody in the newsroom is watching TV instead of working. And you suddenly <laughs> realized...
1: Yes, that I was watching history.
2: We'd just gotten to town. We were, like, shopping for furniture at Wenty Brothers, you know, used furniture. And, of course, the, it was on the TV everywhere you went. And so you'd end up in conversations with people. And I remember uh, um, um, an African-American man and his, and his mother were shopping. And we ha- I had a little conversation with him about it. And he said, uh, no, this is—it's this is, clearly not O.J. that did this. He said, this is—a this, uh, brother would have shot her. And uh, and this, these knives, this knife thing, this is it's definitely Colombians. And so it was a, a real introduction to kind of racial politics in LA and racial racial perceptions in LA. And and it was very clear that that uh, that people on the other side of the question of his guilt and innocence were as exactly as as uh, convinced of it as, as as we were. So it I, it, I, it very early on I I learned to take a kind of multiple view of the possibilities.
1: And to see it again, uh, and they are being very faithful to all the major beats in the story, so that's fun to relive, but also to see it from the angle of 2016, which brings new insights, I think, um, is super fun. What are the new insights? Uh, Well, one is that, uh, this is so obvious, but I didn't realize it at the time, that the, the trial was a collision of two narratives of injustice in America. One, the battered woman and two, the uh, battered black man battered by police. And those two narratives collide in this story, and, of course, the men win. I mean, the men's narrative wins.
0: Well, celebrity wins. And that's the and, thing. And money wins. And That's, that's exactly right, because what makes it, you, you, I think you, you summed up the, the, the larger, the meta-narrative beautifully, actually, but what makes it so bizarre is that O.J., was it the nexus of it? Because O.J. was not a black man who had been abused by the police. O.J. came to stand for a black men who'd suffered at the hands of law enforcement, but in fact, O.J. barely identified with the black community.
1: And and the person who made that happen was Johnny Cochran, of course. And
0: well, I tell you, the the main problem I
2: have with the whole show is that I don't think any of the lawyers are represented as being as bright as they actually were. They were all much smarter than they're being shown
0: well, Let's to do. talk about Johnny Cochran for a minute, and we should say the actor who plays him is a guy called Courtney Vance, who's doing who is such better, a good job. Great actor. He's he's just terrific. Why do you feel that he's not represented as as smart as he was? I think the portrayal of Cochran is is pretty laudatory. Actually,
1: I do too.
2: It's pretty laudatory, but he's you know he's slow on the on the uptake, and he you know sometimes his wife has to point some things out to him about how he should go and. You know the the real Johnny Cochran, who you you know you felt like you had gotten to know by the end of that trial, was a much more confident and fluid. And um, Courtney Vance's
0: Johnny Cochran is good, but he's not great. I think it's working well. But while we're on the subject of the performances, uh, Lori. Travolta as Robert Shapiro.
1: Uh, I am tremendously enjoying this performance. A, because I think Travolta is tremendously enjoying it. And B, because...
2: That's clear.
1: (laughs) And also because Robert Shapiro was such a freak. I mean, if you just remember his face and how he held himself, and he was just a heinous name dropper. And uh, it's a fun character to see satirized, which I think Travolta is doing.
0: It's way over the top, though. It's, It's a Baroque performance. Yeah. But but very entertaining. Yes, I, absolutely. I, I like it against my better judgment. I think, in in many ways, the the heart and soul of one half of this miniseries is Sarah Paulson's performance as Marsha Clark. Lori
1: Well, you know, I, I think that that Marsha Clark and Johnny Clark Cochran emerge as the two kind of Greek tragedy figures in this story. Uh, uh, Cochran because he sold his soul in my opinion, and Marsha Clark, because she, uh, obviously the, you know, the, the series underlines this again and again, she, um, underestimates the, the difficulty of her job and the, and, and as we were all surprised, I think, I mean, I remember being very surprised that so many people thought OJ was innocent when it was so obvious. I thought that he was guilty. Um, and she was very surprised by that too. And she made multiple mistakes, um,
0: now, just this past week, a knife turned up.
1: Unbelievable.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Un- unbelievable is the <laughs> word, that, that someone had given a cop years ago that for some inexplicable reason, this cop did not turn in. Uh, the f- knife was found on the property when they were raising OJ's house on Rockingham. What do you guys make of this?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think it's inexplicable because if the guy was trying to protect the police... Right, then he would not have turned in the knife is and, that what
0: he is that what he said? Uh, well, apparently, they
1: hmm. kind of all stick together, right? that the guy who found it gave it to a policeman who kept it for all these years.
2: I don't know it, it's it's not it's the knife has nothing to do with the actual murder, so it doesn't really matter unless it's the
1: what, murder weapon, which they never yeah, found
2: Here's one thing that i I remember thinking at the time, which is that uh my my general uh, kind of guess was that. What happened was that O.J. probably did it, and the police planted evidence. Police are guilty. O.J. is guilty. Everybody's Shades
1: guilty. of making a murderer with a different um, outcome for the defendant.
2: But now, as I as I watch the show and as I read the online about the show, it seems like uh, there the possibility that there was no planted evidence, and in fact that there that the, a lot of evidence that was on the scene was. Overlooked and uh, police incompetence, which of course we're used to, uh, was was more more the more the issue than police planting evidence. Uh, anyway,
0: uh, Laurie, what's your favorite part of the show before we
1: wind up? Chris Darden is interviewing Mark Furman about his hobbies and his interests, and Mark Furman says he collects World War II memorabilia. Which and then Chris Darden said, doesn't say, you know, what kind of World War II memorabilia, and then they come in with the Wagner, and and uh, that was. So fun! I love and,
0: that. And the, we should say the camera dollies in on a tight shot of a swastika. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to end that, the last episode, yeah, Tom. What about you? Is what was? That,
2: and that is not. There's no evidence that he's got Nazi paraphernalia in his house, right? There's no. Are you the, sure? The, the, Did you look yeah, it up? Yeah, the, yeah. It's just. And not, Tom, your favorite does, part of the series? That's just made up, as far as anybody knows. Uh, my favorite part of the series, I guess, I do like. I do like the the uh, the Chris Darden... Um, Johnny Cochran subplot. I think that that's an that's an interesting, um, interesting story, and it's the one of the places where Cochran shows himself to be the kind of uh, have the ability to to play several different games all at the same time, which is what it takes to be a great lawyer. So that's uh, 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 that's the place where he steps up to
0: to the real Johnny Cochran. I feel. For me, it was Connie Britton's portrayal of Faye Resnick.
1: Fantastic. So fun. <laughs>
0: Indelible. <laughs> yeah. The OJ series, it's on FX. We all like it. We'll be watching the rest of it. Check it out. Does it bother anybody that Cuba Gooding does not look at all like...
1: I know look- a lot of people say that. I think he's doing a good job of the internal OJ, though, so it he's, doesn't bother me.
0: He's evoking the the, tr- the agony of OJ. He's
2: okay. He's evoking the inside of OJ that we never saw. Right, I mean, OJ. O- 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 OJ's agony was always a kind of almost thorazineed. Um, we projected
0: it on him. I uh, think. Yeah. And I-, I think Cuba Gooding's doing. A t- is it? C- it's Cuba Gooding. I think. Right? Is it? I believe so. Cuba. He's doing an excellent job. I
1: Do you think. want to hear about the Nazi memorabilia? Yes. Okay. I found it. Just give me a second. Okay. Well, it says here that he that Johnny Cochran told the San Francisco Chronicle. Garden also knew that Furman was a bad guy. He knew he collected Nazi memorabilia. He knew his past record. I went over to him at the trial because I had respect for him and I said, "Don't as a black man take Furman as a witness. You'll be used." So, so that that is portrayed in the in the series and apparently maybe he did have Nazi memorabilia.
0: How old was Johnny Cochran when he died?
1: He was in his 60s. He was young. Yeah. He died 10 years after the verdict. Right. Uh, at 60 something of a, you know, exploded conscience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour 90.7 KPFK FM. The author, Antoine Wilson, has been kind enough to drop in again to talk about something he's been reading recently. Antoine, what is it this time?
3: Um, this time, it's the collected stories of Guy de Maupassant, also known as Guy de Maupassant, or however you want
2: to pronounce <laughs> that's it. That's in New Jersey. That's what we called him.
3: Good. You talked about him a lot on yeah, the streets absolutely. of uh, New Jersey. Grove absolutely. Cedar Grove. Um, I've, yeah, I've been sort of, I picked this one up uh, electronically via our friends at Project Gutenberg. And I've just been making my way through the stories and they have this old school objectivity to them that is really, really appealing. And they're also really concise and compressed and not contemporary, but they, I feel like they're, they're, they're exciting in a way that, that could inform fiction moving forward. And I feel like in a sense, it's like somebody took Flaubert and just squeezed him and squeezed him and squeezed him until there was... There was almost nothing left.
0: Do you think concision is something we don't get enough of in literature?
3: I guess it depends who you're who you're reading. These days, are, there are a number of books that are sort of collage and have these little tiny snippets with white space in between. And if they're written well, we get a lot of that, that concision. The fun thing about Maupassant is the concision isn't with white space in between. It's just moving sort of from one scene to the next or one moment to the
1: next. Did you read um, Diary of a Madman? That one the, it's a uh, short um I just it very much impressed me when I was like sixteen, and it's really stayed with me. but it's a guy who starts out by killing a little bird one day and then he he just progressively he becomes a murderer and it's his diary.
2: Uh, I, no, I haven't gotten there yet. Uh, anyway it's, yeah. it's,
1: it's it's really fun <laughs>
2: and, and he only he died at the age of forty two right he was a he, he was a he didn't have a very long career no short
3: story writers don't
2: oh is that right they all die young so often yeah yeah, yeah. novelists
3: yeah. live longer oh interesting i yeah is there a
2: relation you think it's I, just yeah?
3: maybe it's because they finish more
0: <laughs> concision kills yeah concision kills I think we've established that Antoine thanks for coming in again
3: my pleasure anytime I'm in the neighborhood
0: this is Seth Greenland I'm here with Tom Lutz and Laurie Weiner you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour 90.7 at KPFK FM Linda Herview is with us. She's written a book called Forgotten, the untold story of D-Day's black heroes at home and at war. Linda, welcome to the LARB Radio Hour.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: The obvious question is, how did you come upon this story?
4: Well, I live in France, and for the big 65th anniversary of d day celebration in June 2009, the French government was pulling out all the stops because they didn't think that there would still be veterans left with us for the 70th anniversary. Mm-hmm. So they invited world leaders. Um, the Obamas came to the American Cemetery in Normandy. And they chose one American to honor named William Garfield Dabney from Roanoke, Virginia. And uh, on June 5th, the day before the big ceremony, he got the Legion of Honor medal at Envalide. The French temple to all things military. And I wrote about him for the New York Daily News. Lots of other newspapers wrote about him. And um, after that, I just, the story was so interesting all-black battalion, Flying Strange Balloons, that I wanted to know more about it.
0: So balloons being the key word here, what, what exactly did these guys do? What were they, Where were they from as a unit and what were they tasked with doing?
4: So the 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion was the only African-American combat unit um, to land at D-Day. There were other black units that landed later in the day in the usual labor and service battalions that uh, soldiers of color were relegated to doing. These men landed early. They landed with the infantry. They were charged with raising these hydrogen-filled balloons about the size of Volkswagen Beetles over the beaches. And they formed a sort of aerial curtain, like forming, flying in a sawtooth pattern, that protected the men and the materiel from dive-bombing German planes.
1: And they kind of look, they're blimp shaped, yeah, the balloons? Yeah, they're,
4: they're, the reason they're not blimps is because they're not piloted um, and they're flown from the ground. They're basically tethered um, by piano wire, essentially. Okay. And the wire itself could be enough to crash a plane because it could cause a stall. Pilots were terrified of them. Imagine these balloons flying in the clouds. Pilots don't know that they're there. Um, But the balloons that went to war packed a secret punch. They had little bombs tethered under the balloon. So with the cable strike, the bomb would descend. It could blow a hole in the wing. It could explode the gas tank.
1: And putting the the balloons up was a dangerous job, yes?
4: The whole procedure was very complex because these men had to know how to make hydrogen in the field. It's a, a highly explosive gas. There wasn't enough naturally occurring helium in the world, which was produced in the Texas Panhandle to fill these balloons and the, the blimps that were piloted with safe gas. That's why there were so many explosions of blimps earlier and in, in before the war. Um, and so these men had to learn how to make hydrogen, make sure it wasn't fouled so it wouldn't explode. They also had to learn how to read wind, the meteorology of the day. It was quite complex and it was a lot more uh, difficult than it sounds.
0: You alluded to uh, the, the the history here that most of the nearly 2,000 African-American soldiers who participated in D-Day were uh, doing service functions. And yet these guys were doing this highly technical job. How did it fall to them, given how the, the, the white brass tended to look at black soldiers? Why did they think these guys could do this?
4: All right. Well, that's really interesting because... Throughout history, we see black soldiers in every American war uh, gaining responsibility, gaining respect. We have movies about the Massachusetts Regiment in the Civil War, the movie Glory. We have the Buffalo Soldiers fighting in the West in Cuba you know, really um, being courageous and brave for America. But then by the world wars, we see the infantry units and the responsibilities for black soldiers curtailed. And we have a whole body of studies and reports based on pseudoscience to justify taking them out of noncombatant positions. But then we see in the um, in World War II, this sort of building toward giving the black soldier more responsibility. And that was, in short, as a result of pressure groups like the NAACP and the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the best friend of the black soldier, really gunning for black soldiers <laughs> to be able to shoot guns, which they weren't allowed to do. And, um, and so we have the forming of the Tuskegee Airmen, the only black pilots. And um, perhaps that's why these men of the 30 Barrage Balloon Battalions, four of them were Black. Uh, perhaps that is why they were chosen to go to Normandy. We don't know.
1: Now, the book it tells a very large story. It, it talks about how the Blacks were... Treated when they went south to Tennessee to train, which was a big shock to some of them—the racism in Tennessee—and then to Britain, to Great Britain, where they get treated uh, very, very well. And so they're they're experiencing all these different levels of racism. And you, it's a great story. When did you realize that you had a book?
4: Well. It took a couple years of research to see what we had. And even when I sold the book proposal in June of 2013, I didn't know what the Britain chapter was going to be. And that for me was absolutely fascinating. The research, I did a lot of research in Britain. And um, the idea that these men who trained in this battalion, who trained for seven months, but they were among tens of thousands of African Americans, I believe 150,000 altogether, uh, that trained in Great Britain before, during the war. And they experienced a freedom they had never known. They were treated as Americans first. It was a spark of light, said Arthur Guest from South Carolina. But it wasn't just Britain. It was everywhere outside this country. It was even in occupied Germany for the black troops who went there.
0: Now, 10 years after D-Day, the civil rights movement was beginning. What were the ways in which the experiences of these men, if any, fed into the civil rights movement?
4: Yeah, the the experience of these men abroad outside their own country was epic. I mean, it really can't be overemphasized. It was these experiences discovering that race hatred was not a natural state of affairs, that there were actually white people who did not look upon them as second-class citizens, Um, even for the northern soldiers who weren't enmeshed in Jim Crow legal segregation you know, when they went to Britain, when they left their their country, they, they really saw a different way of living. And then when they came back, you know, essentially they, they weren't going to take it anymore.
2: And of course, there's an earlier version of this that happens in World War One, right? When black soldiers and black people supporting the military ended up Finding the same thing in Europe and coming home, and some people credit the Harlem Renaissance to that experience.
4: Right, and and also the um, the black soldiers who went back to their southern rural communities in uniform paid a heavy price for that. Yes. There was uh, lynchings and riots, and it was the the Red Summer of 1919 and
2: to do this book you interviewed a number of people who are from the battalion right the number yes. number were are still alive
4: i was able to find 12 in the families of of some others
2: and did they kind of agree on on how things went down and how things seemed and how Did they have the same experience or did they vary quite a bit?
4: They all agree on how wonderful it was being in Britain, even despite the privations of war. You know, it was uh, it was it was not a time that a lot of white GIs enjoyed uh, being there after the first initial glow. Um, They all agree on that. Uh, What they don't agree on is how shocking it was to be sent to Camp Tyson, Tennessee, in northwestern Tennessee, to be subjected to that sort of brutal, brutal Southern racism. Um, It depended where they were from. To the Southerners, this was life. This was just a continuation of what they knew. For the Northern uh, recruits, this was a, a shock, you know, having to change train cars, watching German POWs go into restaurants where they weren't allowed—that um, was shocking.
1: The twelve people, did you say twelve that mm-hmm. you that you found and interviewed? You must have been so happy every time you found one. Right. But were they? How, what was their um, attitude when you first approached them? Were they happy? Were they surprised? Were they? I, I, I've read I've read a little about this, so I do know some of the range, but could you talk about it?
4: Yeah, it it depended. I mean, a lot of these men hadn't spoken of their experiences before, and that's not just be not exclusive to this battalion or to an African-American battalion. That's typical of war veterans. Those Us reporters who try to interview them, Uh, I uh, used to try when I was early in my career working for newspapers, every Veterans Day, Memorial Day. It's very hard to get them to tell their war stories. A lot of us know this. Children of veterans know this. Um, In the case of these men, a lot of them didn't think that they were doing anything important. Who would care about the deeds of black men? When I would say, you didn't keep your letters, did anyone write a journal? You know, I was hoping for that. I never found that. I only found letters extensive letters, helpful letters from one soldier, the one from Atlantic City, New Jersey, who I lead the book with.
0: War and race are two distinct and gigantic subjects. Uh, did you as a writer ever have any, uh, had you had you ever written about war prior to this? No, not, or, at,
4: not at all. I'm the last person in the world to write about war. Or, or race? No, no, no. I mean, I, well, race as it I mean for years, I covered the criminal justice system mm-hmm. for newspapers. I worked at the New York Daily News as uh, on the metro desk. I mean, so race is always a backstory to what you do. But no, I've never focused on race. I've never focused on military history. So for me, this was a six year you know learning experience, basically.
0: Do you see a way that you might be able to use it again? because again, you they're, they're they're both inexhaustible as subjects.
4: I don't know. You know, it's it's. is it a good idea for me to be writing about race in America? Or is that something that should be left to somebody who's an expert? I did, don't know.
0: Did you feel odd at all as a white woman writing about black men at war?
4: I didn't because as a reporter, you just report out your subject. And they opened up to me and I just did my research. I read countless, you know, scores of oral histories with black soldiers um, all end-noted and have about a thousand endnotes in this book, and I hope that it's well researched enough for people who are interested, either in sort of the evolution of wartime race issues in America or the military history that concerns this particular area of um, of the army.
2: Now, have you sold the the uh, film rights to this? We have not. Because it, it's it's. But I have
4: a guy you can call if you <laughs> if you want to buy <laughs> them. Yeah, I have, uh, okay, I, 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 I have an agent it, you can be in touch with. Terrific.
2: I mean, because it's such a cinematic uh, it's image the 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 balloons flying and downing planes like. Uh, The you know come some weird cross between a child's toy and a and a and a and a great modern super modern technology and a steampunkish modality everything everything about it is uh, is odd and. Fascinating.
4: What a lot of people in Hollywood have said is nobody will make another D Day movie, that Saving Private Ryan is the last one, which is, of course, a shame, you know, because there are no black men in that movie. Well, Mm -hmm. it's a
1: shame, but it's also not true. I mean, every time that's Hollywood perceived wisdom, I mean, remember what they taught David O. Selznick before he made Gone with the Wind. You know, it's no way that a Civil War movie could succeed. I mean, all of those things are just rules to be broken.
0: The movie is these guys in Britain. They don't have to get to France. That's the movie. Starting them in Atlantic City, taking them to Britain. Do you remember a film Richard Gere did about 30 years ago called Yanks? Yes. It It was American soldiers, all of whom were white in Britain, and how they experienced the war away from home in a small English town. But there's a terrific movie with these African-American soldiers in England in 1944.
4: I think so, too. You need to call yeah. your agent.
0: And D-Day is just under the uh, the closing credits. They end when they leave. The movie ends when they leave yeah. and go you don't, the you don't,
4: Yeah, you don't even need to land on the beaches to tell the story of these men, you know. It's an so. incredible
1: contribution to the to the field. So congratulations. Awesome. Thank, you. Thank you. I
4: really appreciate that.
0: Yeah, the book is Forgotten, the untold story of D-Day's black heroes at home and at war. Linda Hervey, thanks for coming on the LARB Radio Hour.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orellano. our spiritual advisor, Aviva de Kornfeld. We couldn't do this show without the generosity of the Goldhurst Foundation, and this is the point in the festivities where we thank them. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Tom, Lori. I am all on Twitter. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week.